I knew that if I left the treatment facility that I would relapse. So that's the mindset I came back into quote unquote normal life with. And so the, the very next day that I was home, I went to an AA meeting and stopped at my liquor store, my favorite liquor store and, you know, had a drink. And then I realized while I was sitting in the car having that drink that I I was never going to be fixed. I just told myself, this is going to be the death of me and I can't do this anymore. I cannot look into the eyes of the people that I love and hurt them anymore. And I physically and mentally just had nothing left in me. I could not go on. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 129. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we believe it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. I, I find the journaling really valuable and I absolutely have immersed myself, less even now so, but in all the quick lit stuff, the reading, the podcasts, and obviously the neuroplasty side of it completely appealed to me. You know, I've been teaching, lecturing that for years and I've never applied it to myself and my daily drinking. So if you want to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My podcast guest this week is the author of a very touching memoir called I'm Sober, Now What? That's an excellent question and there's definitely quite a difficult stage that we reach when we're in early sobriety. For many of us, it's a bit of a void a kind of flatness when we suffer from anhedonia. We haven't found our sober feet yet and we're certainly not yet really enjoying our sobriety. Our old routines are messed up, our drinking buddies are keeping their distance and we're not entirely sure what to do with ourselves. It really is a question of, I'm sober, now what? And that's why at Tribe Sober we take people on a seven-step journey because there's so much more to recovery than simply not drinking. We help people to ditch the booze and then we introduce them to things like yoga, coaching, meditation, art therapy. We just want them to explore and start to build their new life, their alcohol-free life, a life they won't want to escape from. 
a life where they won't sit around saying, I'm sober, now what? Author Melissa Witherspoon calls her memoir A Journey of Hope and Healing. That's the subtitle to I'm Sober, Now What? Anyone who's been struggling for years will take hope from this book. Melissa actually spent decades struggling with alcohol, in and out of rehab, getting sober and then relapsing, but it finally stuck. I began by asking Melissa to introduce herself. I am so grateful to be here. Thank you so much. I feel very honored and privileged. And my name is Melissa Gissy Witherspoon. Gissy is my maiden name. And I am originally from a suburb north of Atlanta, Georgia, which is in the United States. And I'm currently living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And that is where I'm raising two of my four children with my husband, Derek. I work part-time at a church as an administrative assistant, and I'm also pursuing a writing career. This career is specific to recovery and all the things that come with that. Wonderful. Okay. Well, as you know, I've read your book and we'll certainly get to that in a moment. But let's let's uh, let's go back in time, shall we, Melissa? Okay. I I read in your book that as a teenager, I think you were, you left home and you got in with quite a wild crowd, didn't you? Yes. Yes, I did. I found a good group, didn't I? <laughs> it sounds sounds like they were quite challenging. So talk, talk to us a little bit about that, including well, how, you, how you got rescued by the police. <laughs> okay. So I grew up in a pretty average scenario, right? My mom and dad were high school sweethearts and they were very much in love. I'm the middle child of an older sister and a younger brother. And we had a good life. It was a nice home. Um, I was raised Catholic. We took, you know, nice vacations. We had, we were a good, typical middle-class family. So I, you know, I didn't have a lot of struggles and burdens as far as my home life goes, other than the odd, you know, fight here or there between siblings, siblings rivalry. But um, I struggled in school most of my life. I had dyslexia and attention deficit disorder, and it was not diagnosed. Back then, they didn't have a lot of the options and um, studies that they have for children these days, right? So I found myself getting left behind a lot. And then when you get left behind in a class, especially in a small Catholic school or private school, you kind of get singled out by either the teachers or the students, in my case, both. And so I... I was always very insecure and shy. I was just awkward. You know, I would say the wrong things at the wrong time. I kind of just made my way through my school years trying to figure out who I was or where I fit in, and I could never really find my niche, right? Um, And then in high school, I stumbled across a group of people, and these were my people. I finally felt like I had found people that got me and they understood me. And they were a group of misfits, mostly boys, but I felt like I fit in or they made me feel like I fit in. And so it started a very quick whirlwind of destruction, honestly. They were all a little bit older than me. They were all driving. They, you know, some of them were maybe had already dropped out of high school and were on their own. I found myself using drugs and alcohol with this crowd. And that's where I started trying things out. And it didn't take very long. It went very fast. It was a fast uh, year or two that 
the next thing you know, I was running away from home. I was jumping from house to house. And um, I had completely just turned my entire attention away from the life that I always knew and invested everything into this group of boys. And they were my, they were my everything. And so were the drugs and the alcohol very quickly. And they introduced me to their drug dealers. And I talk about that in the book and what that looks like and how quickly I was invited into that next level of group of people. And I fit right in with them even better. And it was uh, uh, amazing at that time in my mind. It was anything you wanted. I think I refer to it as the den of iniquity. You know, like anything you wanted, you can have. It doesn't matter. There's no rules. Come and go as you please. And the choices I made and the circumstances from those choices during that time, I don't want to give too much away, but this is a short, short window of time. You know, this is maybe I'm, I'm hanging out with these drug dealers and I'm living at their house for less than a month. Some dark things, really bad things happened. And I was eventually rescued from that situation during a police raid. Wow. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? As teenagers, uh, Melissa, how much we want to fit in and find our people. And when we do, you know, we don't even care if they're so obviously not the right people. But if they accept us and we feel one of the crowd, we'll, we'll go for it. Well, thank goodness you managed to get yourself out of, out of that fix. <laughs> thank goodness. And I did. But the the problem was what happened and what transpired over that time was a complete opposite of the life in which I came from. Mm. So when I was plucked out of that scenario and put back into my home life, it was never dealt with whatever, you know, what had gone on in those times, you know, it was a high school dropout and I had seen and experienced things that were very different than the home life I was brought back to. And so I kind of just had to go back into this quote unquote normal living environment, but with all of that knowledge of what I've just walked through still very much deep within me. And how was your relationship with your parents? I mean, they must have been worried sick about you when you were gone. Well, uh, and then you, then you were back. And how did that go? Well, they were. They were worried sick. I have to be honest with you. We didn't talk about it a lot. I mean, my mom knew some of the details. She had a very, very straight-laced life. She was a rule follower. She's always, you know, a devout Catholic. She's always done things the right way. That's been an easy way for her. When I would try and talk to her about some things, I don't know if it was denial or if she couldn't really wrap her head around it or maybe some of both. But, you know, she had offered, well, maybe you should talk to a counselor and she would take me to some counseling appointments. But to be honest with you, I had so much shame and guilt wrapped around me. And I was so young, you know, I was still in my I was barely 21 by the time I got into some kind of counseling that I wasn't honest in those appointments and I never did any real digging and real healing. I didn't take advantage of those opportunities. So I just moved into my 20s and 30s carrying that with me. And, yeah. and you continued to, to drink, didn't you, during that time? And you were in and out of AA and rehabs, yes, I think. That's, that's correct. 
So it carried on through two decades of making choices and then having the consequences of those choices. It was a cycle that just kept going on and on. You know, I, I would get a DUI, I would get an uh, emotional, physically and emotionally abusive relationships. And I'd have periods where I was very productive and everything was lining up and I was doing the right thing. And I would seem very successful from the, you know, an exterior view. And inside I was just kind of falling down the rabbit hole my soul and my my emotions were just constantly on a downward spiral. And the best way for me to cope with that was to drink and use drugs. That's the be- that's how I managed to mask the pain or anything that I was carrying with me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a, a really sad part of the book. Well, I found it very heartbreaking (laughs) when you were sent home from rehab with a a bag of pills in a plastic bag you said and then you you ended up I think relapsing within 24 hours and you were you started swallowing these pills washing them down with vodka and trying to commit suicide really I did I did That particular trip to rehab was probably one of my longest um, stays. I think it was a 30-day treatment center, and I was there for 55 days. And I was begging them to not send me home because I just knew that I wasn't ready. I didn't feel any sort of a breakthrough. I knew that if I left the treatment facility that I would relapse. So that's the mindset I came back into, quote-unquote, normal life with. And so the the very next day that I was home, I went to an AA meeting and stopped at my liquor store, my favorite liquor store, and, you know, had a drink. And then I realized while I was sitting in the car having that drink that I I was never going to be fixed. I just told myself, this is going to be the death of me. And I can't do this anymore. I cannot look into the eyes of the people that I love and hurt them anymore. And I physically and mentally just had nothing left in me. I could not go on. And so the, yes, the rehab, it's kind of interesting. I think I wrote about a little bit, the rehab center that I was at, they, I went in for Xanax and alcohol and they sent me home with a bag filled with other prescriptions to, I guess, alleviate the alcohol and Xanax abuse. So, you know, I have heavy sleep aids and muscle relaxers and things like that. It was, it was a lot. They sent home with a lot. You have to be very careful in your sobriety journey to make sure that you're asking questions and researching what you are doing. Do you know what I mean? Like if you have cancer and you are told you need chemotherapy, most people don't just go with that first diagnosis, right? They get a they get a second opinion. They go on the internet. I'm the first one to to pull up Google. I'm gonna Google it. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to other people that have been through the same kind of thing. And that's a great suggestion for somebody who's walking through sobriety to to use your resources and find out what's good and what's gonna work for you and for your recovery. Because at that stage I didn't I didn't do that. I was so desperate to stop drinking. I would do whatever I was told or whatever um, direction that I was led. This certain direction led me to a bag full of pills, which I did ultimately use to try and take my own life. Well, thankfully, your, your husband came home from work early that day. 
He he did. He did. He was supposed to be gone. I can't remember, honestly, if he was leaving. Um, we were still in Georgia and he, his family lives in North Carolina where we now live. And I can't remember if he was taking a day trip up to do something with one of his dad's doctor appointments or if there was a work scenario. But I knew when he left that morning that he would be gone for a long time. So I knew I had time to do what it is that I felt like I needed to do. And he forgot something and um, came back and he, we do not, um, I smoked like chain smoked at the time and he's never been, he doesn't smoke. He's not a drinker. Um, I'd never smoked inside the house. And when I was in the the basement, I was smoking back to back because, you know, I was going to die. I didn't care if I was smoking in my house or not. Right. I wasn't in the frame of mind. So when he came home, I think that he could smell that and something was off and then of course I wasn't around and and then he was able to find me yeah you're listening to a podcast from tribe sober when you rehab once there you asked them uh, what was on the menu later in the week or or what was the tv program for the week and I thought it was um quite amusing the way they said oh never mind about later in the week you know we're we just think about today here. And and of course, I understand the one thing, one day at a time. But but how do you feel about that one day at a time approach now? Is it is well, it good? Does, yeah, does yeah. it work? Yeah. My perspective on one day at a time today is much different than it was then. Then I loathed it. Anytime somebody would throw a lingo or or a, a catchphrase or a recovery phrase at me, I wanted to just throw it right back at them. Like, what do you mean one day at a time? Like, do you know what I mean? I have doc, I have counseling appointments I got to line up. I'm, go- I'm about to go to prison, maybe. I have, my child has been taken from me. I, you name it. I've listed it in the book. I, w- it was, I was up against it. And so when I would ask a counselor or a another person in the facility, I would say, well, what do you think we're having for lunch tomorrow? Or, you know, is, do you think they're going to offer yoga or some program or something on Friday? They would say, don't worry about that. Today's Wednesday. You know, we're going to do this one day at a time. And I was so frustrated by it. I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) I guess your head was so full of these worries, you know, about your kid and your court cases and whatever that, it, it was pretty hard for you to just focus on on the present. It was a concept I could not wrap my head around. And I have to be honest with you, even this far along in sobriety, it is still one of the more challenging things for mm. me to focus on. There is no okay. such thing as getting sober and then living happily ever after. You You still have your same character traits, right? You are still who you are. You're just not drunk. <laughs> so <Yes. Yeah>. you <laughs> and so I am still an, an anxious personality type. I still I'm still always thinking ahead or getting ahead of myself or overanalyzing and and I've just found ways through sobriety to curb that or to recognize that, find a way to kind of calm it. And one of those ways is to first say, and I, I usually have to say it out loud, one day at a time, Melissa. Yeah. Or progress, progress, not perfection. I hated that. I hated those (laughs) terms, but they really mean something to me right now because it's, it's, I'm allowing myself 
I'm giving myself permission to not be perfect. And I'm yeah. giving myself permission to take it step by step. Easy does it. Slow it down. Right? Yeah. 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 So. We have to find other ways to cope, don't we? And, we have to, and these mantras, you know, although they seem like cliches when we first hear them, they can actually be quite, quite useful. I really like the they progress, not, not perfection. I think that, right. that's, that's a very helpful way to look at it. Yeah. I read uh, again in the book that when you left rehab, some of the other people, I can't remember which rehab it was. I think there were there were a few, but this one particular <laughs> rehab, <laughs> you left and, and you noticed that some of the other graduates were very excited about starting their sober lives. But you, you said you, you felt terrified and, and you became a dry drunk, as you put it. Talk to us, tell us what a dry drunk is and, and talk to us a little bit about your fear. So my interpretation of a dry drunk is that you are not drinking, but you are not doing the things in sobriety that are um, carrying you or, or developing you on a spiritual level. You know, you're not evolving. You're just kind of staying complacent. So you're you're sober, right? You're not drinking, but you are still embodying the characteristics and um, behaviors from your drinking days. Yeah. So yeah. that that was very much my first year. In a way, you're, you're leading the same life as you were leading before, but without the alcohol in it, which, yeah, which doesn't work because we, we <laughs> have to change so many things, don't we? It's true. It was terrible. Yeah, it's very hard. So that was, was that your first year of sobriety, you say? When when that happened? Yes, that was my yeah. first year of sobriety on this attempt at sobriety. Yeah, okay. at this, my most recent attempt of sobriety. That was the first year. And I knew when I left rehab that I was walking in to a hot mess. There was no yeah. pink cloud for me that first year. It just wasn't going to be that way. That didn't get to be my my path. I knew that going into it. So... And that's but, it. And I was exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So no pink cloud for you, Melissa. Not but at did, first. No, not at first. But did you manage to keep going, although that year was really difficult, no pink cloud, or did you relapse after that time? I kept going. Great. Yeah, okay. I kept going. There was no relapse. I knew because of what had happened before I went away with my attempt to end it all. And, you know, people would say to me, well, maybe you just were seeking attention or maybe um, you just didn't know how to ask for help. That wasn't the case. You know, when I decided to take my own life, I wanted to go. I was done. This was not an attention opportunity. And so I knew that when I um, came back home, that's it. We were at, they say, jails, institutions, and death. Okay, well, I've been to jail. I was looking at going back and possibly for a very long time. Um, I've been to many institutions, and I was at near death. So get it, this was, we're going to get it right, or it's, we know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. yeah. No yeah. relapse. Your husband, I'm not sure I got the timing right, but there was a a passage about him being very supportive and, and filling every hour of your day with constructive things for you to do. I've heard about this kind of technique, and, and I think it, it is good, actually, to be busy in early sobriety so you don't spend too much time thinking. Yeah. And 
uh, I wanted to ask you, did that work for you, having a schedule? It did. It absolutely did. And the the great thing about my situation, well, Derek, he's very organized. You know, he's the spreadsheet. Um, it's what he does for his job, logistics. And so um, becoming my life coordinator for those few short months was a, a blessing. That's one of the blessings that comes in our relationship. We all have blessings and then we all have things that we don't feel are blessings, right? That is one of the things that I love about him. He's very logical and very systematic where I'm very um, emotional and sporadic and all over the place. And it's a good balance for each yeah. other. When yeah. it's in balance, it's a good balance. So I needed that. I needed that yeah. help. I needed that structure. Yeah, I was interviewing someone recently and he made me laugh. He, he was explaining that, I think it was his sponsor, said, if, if you feel like you're going to drink, then uh, just call me. But the, the guy said to me, by the time, um, you know, if I want to have a drink, I'm not going to call somebody up because all I want to do is have a drink, not talk to someone. <laughs> and I right. thought that was really funny, you know, and it was him that said to me, I've got to have a really busy schedule until, you know, I find my sober feet. Well, he's on. Yeah. I mean, he's being honest with you. I love yeah. that. That's You have to be honest about where your mindset is. And when we're talking to each other about our journeys, we have to be authentic with each other. It's embarrassing yeah. to, to share some of the thoughts that we actually have, but it, we're very, very similar, all of us. You know, we yes. all we all feel and are connected in the same way. Yeah. We have our own lives and our own circumstances, but when we share those kind of things, that's that unity, that authenticity is 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 really a, a powerful thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that too. And uh, we can say things to each other that we can't really say to our friends and families. That's right. Because they won't get it, will they? They will not. They will not. You come out with a nice analogy in your book. I love analogies. You talk about the family in recovery in a boat. Do you remember that one? And you said it's as if you're all in a boat and then if one person stands up, i.e. the, the person struggling uh, with alcohol or whatever, the rest of the family have to rebalance to keep the boat afloat. Yeah. I mean, you can apply it to anything in life, yeah. even, uh, even um, people that aren't in sobriety. It's just a great concept. It's very easy. And it, I found it, I came across it at one of my counseling appointments. I was starting to embrace my sobriety. I was becoming independent and strong. I, have, I was finding strength in places that my family was not used to. And so I think it was scaring them because there was a lot of changes going on. You know, who is this person? And you think that your family would want that, right? You think they want you to be strong and independent, start putting personal boundaries up and living in society and giving back and doing all these great things. But if they're used to you being a certain person for so long and their responsibility is to carry weight for you and then all of a sudden you take that from them and they're not going through any kind of counseling or processing the, the movement or the change, it's scary. You know, it's shocking. So she was explaining it to me. I was like, I don't understand. I was so frustrated. I was like, how am I going to get beyond this? I'm doing what they want. I'm, I feel good about it. But then they're coming, you know, I'm getting backlash for it. And she explained the, the, the boat scenario. So my family members are, we're all in a boat and we're going down a river together and it's nice, calm waters. And, you know, I get up to, shift my position in the boat to paddle us. And if another member in the boat does not shift their weight, then the boat will tip over. 
Yeah. Right. Uh, that's, that's it. That's great. And so that's everybody, so yeah, everybody has to kind of shift around and, and make adjustments. And it, and I, I realized at that point that it was not me in recovery, that my family was in recovery and that I was going to have to find patience with that, that it wasn't yeah. just about me. It was very much about um, this unit and um, these people that they're, you know, they're my people there. We, yeah. we share life together and it, they have all been impacted by my decisions and my behaviors as they adjust and they move in the boat so we can balance the boat out. So we don't tip over. I would have to be patient. Really. That's just it. And, and I am not a patient person. <laughs> this required, a, this required counseling and a lot of deep thought and a lot of practice, but it's possible. It really yeah. is. It really is possible. You gave an example of that kind of unbalance happening at some point in the book. Your your husband, the logistics expert, had you working on his schedule, you know, very busy. And then you got stronger and stronger and didn't actually need all that structure anymore. And he got quite angry, didn't he? Yeah, such, he did. Quite hurt he, that you departed from the, the path of structure. Yes, he did. <laughs> You used the two words that I would use. He was hurt. He was angry. And his anger, in most cases, comes from being hurt. That's how he shows his hurt is through anger. And so I couldn't get it. I wanted him to be proud of me. But yeah. it wasn't about that he wasn't proud of me. It was about um, he had his own fears. Well, it's a codependent scenario, really, if it's textbook yeah. codependency. Yeah. If, if, if I didn't need him to rescue me, then wh what was his role and the relationship? And then also, you have to include, did he trust me? Because yeah. I don't know that he did. I yeah. had There had not been enough time for him to trust enough to let go of the reins. You know, he'd been holding on to the reins pretty tight and doing a fine job and look at how great progress she's making. I'm not ready to give that over to you, Melissa, because if I do, then you are going to make me look like an ass again. Really, that's it. You are going to make me look like a fool and I won't be made to look like a fool again. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. he was full of fear as well. You know, Yes, very fearful. Yeah. That yeah. you would go back into those destructive ways. Yeah. Melissa, in your book, you write very movingly of your father's last year of life, which coincided with your first year of sobriety. As you put it, you say you were both exhausted and both trying to stay alive. And that you became very close in that period, didn't you? Yes. Yes, we did. It was it was one of the biggest blessings of my sobriety was to spend the first year of my sobriety with the last year of my dad's life. I wish that he was still here. I wish that he could see where I am now. But I, I am so grateful that that last year we had together with me sober, you know, and he, we were both fighting to stay alive at the same yeah. time. So it united us in a way that we had never been able to really connect before. It was beautiful. 
Yeah, yeah, it must have been. And you, you talk about that time when uh, he asked you to get him some morphine, and you, you felt a bit anxious about that. You know, the addict, the morphine thing. But obviously, yeah. you, you know, you got it because he needed it for the pain. And and when you um, helped him to take that morphine, you felt like something was passing. You know, from uh, from you to him, didn't you? It was, it yeah, was very symbolic. Yeah. Uh, when you bring it up, I can visualize it. It's you know how you have some memories that are yeah. close to you, and then some that are just right. They're so vivid. I don't. I will never forget that moment. In your book, Melissa, I love the description about the three stages of relapse because I, I hadn't heard about that before. You talk about emotional, mental, and physical relapse. Can you describe those stages for us, please? Okay, this now listen, I'm not a doctor. I am speaking from my experience with recovery. So these three stages are the ones that I am aware of that explain what relapse looks like to me. So, you know, in stage one, you're in an emotional relapse. So this is when you are aren't thinking about drinking necessarily or using substances, but your behavior and actions start paving the path to do so, right? So things that are triggering to you, such as lack of self-care or um, isolation or mood swings, do you know what I'm talking about? Those kind of things can begin playing tricks on your addictive brain, I call it, and then it awakens it. So if you are doing that long enough, you can eventually go into a stage two, which is like a mental relapse. And the mental relapse is where you have to let, um, so you let your triggers from stage one set in deep enough that you are becoming uncomfortable in your own skin. And then you start becoming complacent. And then the things that you normally would do to help those triggers, you don't do anymore. You're not going to meetings. You're not reaching out. You're not talking to people. You're not uh, doing meditation or yoga or praying or exercise, whatever the things are that relieve some of those triggering things from your emotional state, your emotional relapse. And then if you stay in that stage long enough, you eventually will find yourself in the stage three, what I call it, and that's a physical relapse. For me, that is the hardest relapse to bounce back from because that is when you're actually back in addictive behaviors. You are actually um, in active addiction using drugs or drinking. You have to go through the hardest bit all over again. And there's nothing more exhausting is there than, you know, falling on and off. And and you also um, talk about the importance of recognizing the triggers in stage one of relapse. And I think that's so important for people to hear, because if we can recognize some danger signs, then we're much less likely to, to carry on and relapse because we'll do something about them. What kind of warning signs should people be looking out for? Well, again, everybody's recovery is different and everybody has their own triggers and warning signs, right? So the when you are become, um, becoming familiar with yourself or dating yourself in your newly found recovery, these are when you will really pay attention to those things that can set you, you off. And so for me, I notice almost right away, lack of self-care is a warning sign when I am not bathing properly or washing my hair, like, yeah, I'll put it off. I'll do that tomorrow. It's simple, right? I went to bed without brushing my teeth because I was so involved in whatever's in my mind that I'm not caring for myself. 
it leads immediately into I'm not sleeping properly. I'm not eating properly. I'm not taking a time out to take a, a brisk walk. And if I'm not doing those things right away, I'm like, uh, what's up? I have yeah. to, I call it check yourself. I have to check myself and say, why am I doing this? Why am I pushing myself to the side? And I have to get back in check. I have to figure it out. I have to, you know, I ju- you can do this anyway. You can journal. You can just have a good self-talk to yourself. You can go over it with, um, if you have an accountability coach, a mentor or a counselor, you can say, hey, I think I'm off and I'm not sure why I need to dig a little deeper and find out. If you can do this at that stage, bouncing back is amazing. All you have to do yeah. is brush your teeth and take a shower. <laughs> you know Easy what I mean? I just need to eat I just need to eat better and take a walk. I don't have to get sober again. I'm still sober. I'm just off track, right? I did pull aside two paragraphs out of that. I was going to ask you if I could share with the listeners. So it's, I'm glad that you asked the question about it. It's from the chapter, Fall Seven Times, Get Up Eight. Do you mind if I No, I'd love you to. Off you go. Okay. So this is... This is from chapter eight from my book, I'm Sober, So Now What? And it, it, the chapter title is Fall Seven Times, Get Up Eight. Fall seven times, get up eight is an old proverb that essentially means it doesn't matter how many times you fall, as long as the number of times you get back up is greater than the number of times you have fallen. I've made several attempts at getting sober. I fell seven times by choosing to drink in my sobriety. I have relapsed many times in all three stages. But eight years ago, I got back up. If I hadn't, I wouldn't be here today writing to you. I would have missed all the beautiful things that have come on this eighth attempt at a new way of life. You can look at relapse one of two ways. You can see it as a failure and use it as your excuse to take you straight down the path that leads you to jails, institutions, or death. Or you can find humility and gratitude and the things that relapse brings and get back on the path of sobriety. I discovered empathy and my ability to feel compassion grew with each time I had to get up and try again. In fact, I found that my purpose in advocating for people with addiction during the upswing from one of my longest, darkest relapse periods. Essentially, what I'm saying in um, what I just read is that you can take relapse two ways. You can see it as something negative, and you can wrap yourself in the guilt and shame uh, that comes with the relapse, or you can um, find gratitude in, in what it brings, which is a chance to start again and a chance to uh, do things different, you know, and really embrace your next opportunity at sobriety. I think it's important for people to know that relapse is almost inevitable. A lot of people don't like to talk about it. There's not a lot of talk about um, relapse or relapse prevention. And I think it's very important piece of our sobriety because if we can be aware of what brings it on, and we can have some awareness about how to maneuver through it and then how to get back up again, there would be a lot different outcome with sobriety as a whole. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That's, that's great advice, Melissa. Thank you so much. How, how long have you been sober now? So my sobriety date is November 21st, 2013. Fantastic. Well, I just celebrated my seven years, so I'm catching up with you. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> that's wonderful work. Seven years is a lot. That's wonderful. It feels good. 
So just summarize a few benefits, top benefits. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind would be my mental and physical health is so improved. Without the substance in my way, I can work on my mental and physical health. And then immediately following is my spirituality. My spiritual health is is strong and is growing because there's not those things from the substance abuse blocking it and keeping me away from taking care of those three very important things. And, you know, I have a purpose. I'm present and I can be of service to others and I'm not lonely. I can face my fear with confidence. But I think the most beautiful thing that has come from this current attempt of sobriety is the ability to love and be loved. I don't know that I ever had that capability before. And this journey, this last eight and a half years, has given me that gift to be able to love myself, to love others, and to allow them to love me back. And um, to be authentic and real and have honest connections with so many different types of people has been one of the most beautiful things in this life. So it, it has a lot to offer. It's a lot of work to be sober, especially at the beginning stages. And you have to continue to work throughout your sobriety, right? It's not just a, we're all fixed up. We got a Band-Aid on it. There's so many beautiful things that come with it that the, the work eventually just it just becomes a new normal, right? Exactly, exactly. And of course, you've had the the benefit of being able to write this amazing book now that is going to help so many people. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Talk, talk to us about how we can get it. I think I downloaded it on my Kindle, which was pretty easy here in South Africa. How can people get the book? All the places, Amazon, Kindle, Apple, you know, anywhere you can think of that you can go to online, you can buy it. Um, I do believe it'll be available uh, in some of the bookstores. Last question for you, Melissa. If someone's listening to this and they know they need to stop drinking, you know, maybe they're not in and out of rehab, but they're downing, you know, a bottle of wine every night and can't seem to stop the habit. How would you advise them to get started? Because I think that's the most difficult thing, isn't it? Just to to get started. It is a difficult thing because we are all so different. There's not one cookie cutter answer for that, you know, and it could be overwhelming too when you're looking for resources. Well, do I need outpatient treatment or is this something I can do at home and holistically? These are things you should do some research and see what resonates uh, the most with you. I would suggest that you take this into consideration first and foremost in order to take that first step into sobriety, you have to really want it for yourself. You don't need to want it for your loved ones or for your children, for your spouse, for your friends. You have to really, truly want to make the change for yourself within yourself or else you're, you're not going to be able to, to find sobriety. That want and need for yourself has to be there. And once you can talk to yourself and make that commitment, you will find resources just about anywhere that would work for you. Thank you so much, Melissa. 
You've learned a lot during those difficult years, and it's good of you to share those insights with us today. Let's pull out some key points. Melissa came from a happy home, but she struggled at school. Suffering from attention deficit and dyslexia when neither condition was really acknowledged meant that either her teachers or her classmates were giving her a hard time. She never really found her friendship group, not until she got to high school when she finally found her people. The only trouble was her new friends were mostly boys and a bit older than her and they were using drugs and alcohol. But she was happy. She was finally fitting in. She was so influenced by this group that she left home and turned her back on everything she knew. So Melissa became a high school dropout and found herself living with a bunch of drug dealers in what she describes as a den of iniquity. But she felt so free and grown up, she could come and go as she pleased and had access to all the drugs and alcohol she wanted. And she loved it at first. However, things got quite dark and Melissa was actually rescued during a police raid. She returned home, but her mum was in denial about just what had been going on and Melissa was just expected to slot back into normal life without any help. In fact, Melissa was full of shame and guilt. She finally managed to get some counselling at the age of 21, but even then she wasn't open with her counsellors, so ended up carrying her shame and guilt right into her 20s and 30s. She coped with her pain by drinking and using drugs, and for two decades she was in and out of rehabs, making poor decisions and then having to deal with the consequences. For some period, she managed to keep up an external facade that all was well, but inside she was falling down the rabbit hole as she puts it. One of the rehabs she went to actually gave her a bag of pills as she left, pills that she subsequently used in a suicide attempt. Her life was only saved when her husband came home unexpectedly. When Melissa thinks back to rehab, she remembers how irritated she was with the one day at a time mantra. She couldn't even get the schedule for the rest of the week as she was told that she had to focus on today. With perspective, she can now appreciate how it can work. And even today, she finds herself saying, one day at a time, Melissa, if she feels anxious or stressed. I think that's a good tip for all of us. Another mantra she's learned to love is progress, not perfection. We use that a lot here at Tribe Sober. We're currently running our annual 66-day challenge and many people are daunted by the thought of 66 sober days. But we give them a tracker and tell them to just mark their sober stretches. How many sober stretches can you do and are they getting longer? That's progress, not perfection. While we're at it, let's look at some more sober cliches that might actually help. How about, this too shall pass. Whether we're reflecting on a tough day resisting triggers or being hit by one of those lows that we feel in early sobriety, this too shall pass is a good one. As Tribe Sober coach Lynette always says, we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and remember that this too shall pass. Another one I like is, one is too many and a thousand isn't enough. 
that's one to remember if you've been sober for a few months and are thinking, okay, I'm fine now. I can just have one glass of wine. Well, spoiler alert, you probably can't. And even if you can, that won't be the case in a few weeks' time and you may well find yourself right back where you started, having to do the hardest bit all over again. So remember, one is too many and a thousand isn't enough. And finally, how about there's no problem that alcohol won't make worse? If we've been using alcohol as a coping mechanism for years, it can be so difficult not to automatically react if we get some bad news and to start drinking. But of course, the problem will still be there when we sober up, along with a crashing hangover. We have to learn how to cope with our problems head on. Those sayings might be cliched, but they've been really helpful to many of us here at the tribe. I hope they'll be just as helpful for you. If anyone's got any favourite sobriety sayings, please send them to janet at tribesober.com and I'll read them out next week. Melissa was always worried about becoming a dry drunk. That happens when you get sober, but you don't do the work. You don't change your life. There's so much more to recovery than not drinking. And that's the journey we take you on at Tribe Sober. Apart from introducing you to various therapies, we connect you with our community and you'll come across people that have been sober for years and they've built a whole new life and they will inspire you like nobody else can. To join our community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. So back to Melissa. She told us about her husband who's in logistics and he loves spreadsheets. She came out of rehab to discover that he created a spreadsheet of activities for her to make sure that she was kept extremely busy in early sobriety. And it worked. This is a definite technique that works for many people. We have to keep our mind occupied so that it doesn't stray into thinking about drinking. Just have a listen to Tribe Sober episode 105 with Jeff Graham, who explains exactly how this technique worked for him. Apart from loving sobriety cliches, I'm very keen on analogies. And Melissa had a nice one about the family in recovery, being like a boat. Because people get used to their roles, and if one of those roles changes, the whole boat needs rebalancing. For example, Melissa's husband got upset when she was no longer relying on the schedule he'd set up for her. She was getting better and better and no longer needed rescuing. This is linked to codependency, of course, and the whole family may need counselling if these patterns have been fixed for years. The whole boat needs to be rebalanced. From her own experience, Melissa has observed that there are three stages of relapse. Stage number one is emotional relapse. Not even thinking about drinking yet, but observing the triggers that seem to be getting more frequent. Stay in stage one long enough without taking action and you may move to stage two, which is the mental relapse. When you start to feel uncomfortable in your skin and skip activities like connecting with your sober tribe and sticking to your exercise routine, all things that will relieve those triggers. Stay in stage two long enough without taking action and you may move to stage three, 
which is physical relapse when you're back in active addiction. Now the advantage of knowing about these three stages are that you can keep your radar sharp for relapse warning signs. These are different for different people of course, but you need to be able to pick up when you are feeling a bit off as Melissa puts it. Keeping a journal is such a good way of monitoring your emotions and picking up that off feeling. For Melissa it shows up in a lack of self-care. If she starts neglecting things like washing her hair, she'll see it as a warning sign and tune in to what's going on. So thank you for that great advice, Melissa. You can find plenty more advice and insight in her book, which is available on Amazon. It's called I'm Sober, Now What? by Melissa Witherspoon. So let me end the podcast with a lovely testimonial that we got from Sally, who's done our Kickstart course. The Kickstart course is a one-stop shop for all the sobriety resources you could ever need. This course not only collates them and more into one place for easy access, but structures them in a thoughtful, progressive way that builds on your knowledge and behaviour as you go along. The personal touch goes above and beyond. Janet introduces you to the course with a one-hour Zoom chat to dig into why you're starting on this sobriety journey. Midway through, there's another chat with Janet to check out how you're doing. Last but definitely not least, you get a one-hour session with recovery coach Lynette, who is one of the wisest, calmest and most uplifting people you will ever meet. All this knowledge and support from people who've been exactly where you are right now means that you have the tools and techniques to succeed and thrive on your alcohol-free journey. I thoroughly recommend this course. Oh, thank you so much, Sally, and well done for being our very first Kickstart graduate. If you'd like to get a discount coupon for our Kickstart course, then all you need to do is post a review for the Tribe Sober podcast because the more reviews we get, the more people this podcast will reach. And that's our mission in life. We want to help more and more people to understand that they don't need to drink just because the ads and the movies tell them that they should. We want everybody to understand that they don't need to drink just because their friends and their family do. So please leave us a review and then email me a screenshot at janet at tribesober.com and we'll send you a discount coupon for the Kickstart course. So that's it from me, guys. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.